Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Uh, we didn't know yesterday, I think, what we would be leading off with today, because kind of out of the blue, we've got another one of these big exclusives from ProPublica about the Supreme Court. But this time, it's not Clarence Thomas. It's uh, Sam Alito. And we first heard about this yesterday because uh, Alito tried to scoop ProPublica, basically, by um, publishing his response to their questions as an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. So basically, as, as we later found out and as kind of became clear in, in the course of, you know, when this op-ed uh, was released yesterday, the people from ProPublica, uh, you know, reached out to Alito, I guess, yesterday or you know, maybe it was the day before, I guess it would have been the day before, something like that, uh, said, you know, here are our questions. And he didn't respond. And then at some point, a few hours later, or something like that, uh, his response shows up as an op-ed. And so he is answering the questions, but also doing kind of like a pre-buttle and getting in some attacks and everything. And, uh, you know... If you're a civilian or if you're not like a Supreme Court justice, uh, there, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I, I've even, uh, you know, in my my lowly status, have done something like that a few times where I've I just haven't responded to something, uh, you know, to a reporter, and I just, you know, I got, I got my own got my own podium here. I just, you know, respond in my own voice. You know, let let people hear me directly. There's nothing wrong with doing that, right? People have people can. Um, get their two bits in, in a, in a forum of their own choosing. But we used to have something called, you know, judicial temperament, which was a certain sense of reserve and restraint. You know, I'm a Supreme Court justice. I'm not going to be out there, you know, shitposting you on Twitter. I'm not going to like troll you and stuff because I'm a Supreme Court justice, right? I'm a, I'm a, respected elder statesman, and it was always, you know, elder statesman. Um, but, uh, you know, Alito has left that in the dust a long time ago. I mean, remember, he was basically like heckling Barack Obama, you know, 10 years ago, or whenever that was, or I don't know if that was like 2014 or 2012. I think it was what was it? I think, although uh, I'm just sort of uh, extemporizing here, I think it was when uh, President Obama in a State of the Union address basically denounced Citizens United, 
said something, I don't know, to the, you know, to the effect that this is, you know, putting money in our politics and Alito's down there. And it's always, here's the thing, when you, when you watch it on TV and I, I have never been at a state of the union address live, you know, there, but I've, I have been in, in the gallery when kind of big stuff's happening. I actually, I mean, a few times, but I actually, years and years and years ago before, before TPM, I actually covered Bill Clinton's impeachment for Salon. Okay. Um, sort of, you know, I did a lot of freelancing for them. Um, this is probably one of the reasons why I, I've always never been crazy about uh, t- people at TPM doing too much freelancing because, you know, never try to, f- never try to kid a kidder, as my dad used to say, you know, I was, I was working at the American Prospect, but I was doing all this freelancing for Salon because I was, I was so sad being at the American Prospect. In any case, a uh, long story. But the point is, is that when the president is there talking, when you're watching on TV, it kind of looks like, wow, you know, Sam Alito, the Supreme Court justices, they're like, you know, they're half a stadium away. They're not. They're like 20 feet away, basically, maybe 15 feet away, right? So they're really close up. And Alito's like, no way, dude. No way. No way. You know, <laughs> he's just he's just an intemperate and peevish guy. So anyway, he responds and uh He's got his own explanation why there was no reason to, um, you know, declare or report these gifts, and he didn't have to recuse himself from this case and that case. But the gist is, as as ProPublica came out with, that uh, back in 2008, he went on this kind of all-expenses-paid trip with this guy, Paul Singer, who's a big hedge fund guy and a big Republican donor. And they went up to Alaska, uh, you know, uh, catching those like big, um, you know, 50-pound salmon that you catch up in those rivers up in Alaska, the kind that like, you know, you hold them in both of your arms and like a grown man can barely hold up the fish kind of thing. And and don't get me wrong, that is awesome. I'm a big fisherman, right? And I'm actually a pretty good fly fisherman. So dude, I would love to go on that trip. And like, if these billionaires have an extra seat that is going unused, I'm, I'm available. And I would even shift my schedule to, to be there. And that this is basically what... Uh, Alito's argument was uh, because the 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 one of the big parts of the story is that it would have cost Alito about a hundred grand to charter a private jet to fly up to Alaska. And his argument was, look, Paul was our. I found I was going to Alaska. I find out Paul's also going to Alaska. He's got an extra seat, and like no one was gonna no one was gonna use that seat. So it was just gonna go to waste. So it was like me just like conservation, right? avoiding, you know, uh, reducing my carbon footprint. That that jet's already going. So I'm on that jet. So like, that makes no sense, right? So you got Paul Singer uh, and some other sort of, um, you know, Republican subgark is the owner of the fishing lodge up there. Uh, and, 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 and the guy who puts it all together is, of course, Leonard Leo. Right. And uh, so it's kind of another version of the Clarence Thomas story. Although, to be fair, the Clarence Thomas story escalated a lot beyond what we seem to have with this. I mean, Clarence Thomas went on like multiple vacations with this Harlan Crow dude, um, you know, to Bali, to to the South Pacific, you know, multiple times with his family, blah, 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 blah. Then it turns out that like Harlan's buying his mom's house and like putting her all sorts of stuff. So what we found out about Alito is not of the scale of Clarence Thomas, but it's the same kind of thing. 
And I think that, um, and, and, you know, the one thing is that uh, in character for Thomas, I think we barely heard from Thomas through all of those ProPublica stories. I think he put out a statement saying, oh, you know, I consulted my friends. They said this was all cool. Uh, you know, going forward, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, report more of these things and blah, 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 blah. But again, Sam Aluto is a different kind of dude. So he's out there like writing, a, writing an op-ed about it and everything. Um, but I think what you see here and, and this Alito thing kind of brings it into, um, brings the big picture together. That it's not like somehow or another, this Harlan Crow guy just glommed onto Clarence Thomas. All of these guys, all of these billionaires are big Republican donors. They're also big Federalist Society donors. And the guys hooking everybody up, hooking each new justice up with their own billionaire friend or sort of like, you know, sponsor family, sponsor billionaire family to take them on vacations and, and you know, uh, renovate their homes and all this kind of stuff is Leonard Leo, right? It, it really is. I did a post about this this morning. It, it, it really is almost like a sponsor family program, you know, like at the military academies and some very kind of, uh, you know, structured college programs. You go there as a freshman or a cadet or a plebe or something like that, and they hook you up with a sponsor family, right? You know, you, you stay there on vacation, you know, on holidays, stay with the sponsor family, go watch a movie, take a nap, you know, something like that, kind of a, a family away from home. And clearly, uh, this is part of the routine that they have. And we, 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 um, Everybody knows that the Federal Society has created this pipeline of appellate judges that get queued up to then be ready to get the promotion to the Supreme Court, a pipeline of these people, a lot of money, a lot of internships, a lot of, you know, a lot of support and kind of, uh, you know, ideological indoctrination, although after they got it kind of down to a science, they didn't need that much of the indoctrination. They kind of get them at the, you know... They get them as kids and they weed out the, the non-ideologues, right? Um, and just a matter of kind of keeping them in good, you know, it's like gardening. Keep them pruned, water them, right? To make, to make sure they're, they're, they're ready. And that's how, you know, you got Amy Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, you know, all of these people. I don't know exactly Barrett's background, but, you know, Kavanaugh's dad's big like Republican lobbyist. In D.C., right? Gorsuch's mom was a cabinet secretary under Reagan, right? It's like intergenerational. They really do breed these guys out of like a test tube, pretty much. But what we don't focus on as much is that after they get on the court, they remain kept, taken care of. Vacations, fun stuff, right? It's a, it's a lifestyle, so we're going to talk about that today. Talk about a, a I mean, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. We have uh, we have third parties, right? And uh, in you know we may have a conceivably we may have a kind of you know conservative, um, you know non-Trump third party. We haven't really seen that yet, but it's possible. It's possible we might have like a Green Party candidate, you know something like that on the left. But for the moment, what we have are this no labels thing, 
run by Mark Penn and Nancy Jacobson, these two kind of forces of darkness, high rollers from D.C., who are big in the, big in the uh, global advertising holding company business. And then we've got this RFK Jr. thing, which is like really weird because, you know, um, the first time he really came meaningfully onto my radar as a political thing was all the way back in 2004, where he was pushing these kind of numerical analyses that supposedly proved that John Kerry had actually won the 2004 presidential campaign. And it was it was kind of a funny thing because obviously that was a very hard fought campaign. It was a very close election and it was a very nasty election. And there was a lot of voter suppression stuff. There was a lot of really nasty things that happened in that election. So there were a lot of Democrats who were really receptive to maybe there was some maybe there was some funny business that happened in like Ohio or something like that. And at the time, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. wasn't known as some kind of like crazy person. And, you know, he came forward with this. And I think there was a big expose in like Rolling Stone or something. Uh, and it was a big thing and people were receptive to it. And I remember at the time, because I kind of assumed like, all right, he's, I, I don't think he's right here, but like, you know, I don't think this is like malevolent or something. This is whatever, but it was a sort of a for, you know, a foreshadowing of things to come. Then he became a big vaccine person. And if you look now, he's, it, is, it, it is basically impossible to find an issue that he is not in lockstep with the Trump crew, basically. And uh, the people who got him into the race are, you know, Steve Bannon and all these kind of Trump people. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, our, our, our friends in, in, in among the House Republicans. Are, are we, are, are we going to do a shutdown now? Just kind of a shutdown for no reason. So we're going to talk about all of that. But I, but, um, before we do, let me remind you, we have this special sponsor this uh, month for the podcast, and that sponsor is TPM, i.e. us. And the sponsor is our big uh, TPM journalism fund drive. And we've been, we've been talking about this last couple, uh, last couple episodes. Um, we had this special episode last week where we talked about sort of the internal workings of TPM. So if you, if you haven't done it yet, if you are a reader of the site, if you only listen to the podcast, please consider making a contribution to the uh, journalism fund this year. It is really critical for us. TPM is the uh, is the entity that that makes this podcast possible. So even if you don't uh, go to the website, uh, consider making a contribution because that's what makes this podcast possible. And presumably, you listen to the podcast because you literally are listening to the podcast. That's how you're hearing me right now. If you don't visit the site a lot, you can go to talkingpointsmemo.com. Uh, and if you go there, you'll see all sorts of promos and everything about the drive. So it'd be easy enough to find. So... Uh, Kate, sort of a, a long monologue intro um, uh, today, but what's what? What do you what do you make of this Alito thing? Okay, so my two favorite details in the story are this is my second favorite is when he says that the seat on the private jet would have been open regardless your your conservation point, but he adds that if he had flown commercial, the marshals would have had to protect him. So really. By flying on the private jet, he was uh, saving law enforcement time and money. So like double good guy, good guy move to fly private. And then 
the other uh the other line that I cherish and I kind of want to get crocheted on a pillow is um he's describing where he stayed and which he describes as uh comfortable but rustic and then when he's talking about the food he says you know if I can recall it was home style fare which I just I like so so much and uh you know goes on to say that uh he can't remember if there was wine but he's sure it wasn't a thousand dollars a bottle it was jug wine yeah, come on. It was totally like, like uh, prison Judge Shadeen wine. wine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is so, so funny. Yeah, I mean, these details are so good. And I think they are helpful because it's not like we are unaware of this stuff, right? Like Scalia died on one of these hunting trips. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. We knew that this stuff went on and that a lot of the justices were pretty unabashed about it. You know, it was Scalia's way of doing it is he would go to give these speeches and then like tie on little, uh, you know, right wing funded fun trips as like a sidebar to these things. But, you know, a long rich history with the right wing judges on the court. Um, And I do think we're in an era now that ProPublica did spark with the Clarence Thomas series that have kind of got people interested in this again and rightfully seeing it as less of, you know, although just a fact of life and more of like, this is really bad. Also, Leonard Leo is involved in basically all of these stories who has like single-handedly kind of crafted the right-wing jurisprudence of our modern age. Um, You know, just kind of like a bespeckled spider in the middle of this web. Uh, So, you know, the details are fine. Didn't it come in in actually in this story that they said that Scalia had also been to this lodge? Yes, that's right. Right. So he's doing these things right and left. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, And I think, you know, whenever these come out, now we've seen the kind of reflexive right wing reaction is to be like, well, that decision was 7-2, you know, or whatever. Like he would not have been a swing vote. And it's such, I mean, it's a willful misunderstanding, right? Because the point here is like, I don't think anyone's arguing that if Sam Alito wasn't taken on these little cozy trips, he would vote with Sotomayor, right? Like no one's saying that. He's obviously an ideologue. But the whole point of this ethics system, right, is like system in quotes, that which there is, is to be like, even avoid the appearance of impropriety. And that's about the more fundamental things that these people profess to care about, which is, you know, legitimacy of the court, legitimacy of the justices, like we're vesting these nine people with enormous power. So there's, you know, an implication that maybe people should be viewing that from a perspective of they're not bought and paid for by people who have interests before the court. Clearly, the justices both enjoy being kind of like uh, bathed in gifts from these people and whether or not, um, you know, they would have been ideologically swayed by them. Even that I don't think is a super compelling argument because it's not like each of these cases is, um, you know, kind of down the ideological line. Like this is the conservative position. This is the liberal position. It's not always that clear cut. And these are often the more boring minor cases because they don't fall that neatly on the spectrum. And if one of these cases, you know, involves one of these guys' business entanglements, it's not at all a reach to see them, you know, going to dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Alito and being like, oh, man, like my my life is really being uh, dragged through hell with this regulation, blah, 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 you know? And it's like, and the whole point is, so you don't even contemplate that possibility, right? They're, they're so above the fray. And now it's just like, it's constant evidence that they are not above the fray and that the, you know, we've talked on the show before, but the, the gatekeeping of the court as this uh, 
sacred, pious, like, you know, above the normal politics body. It's it's always been bullshit. And that's always been a really convenient way to kind of protect the court from the very accurate critiques that they're working, you know, out of a partisan interest. Well, what it's also reminiscent of, and you've seen this in the um, classified documents case with Trump, that what Republicans have sort of you know the defensive position they have found the sort of the rampart they're 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 crowding behind is saying dude he didn't you don't even have any evidence he sold them so what's the problem and and again that's that's not the standard right it, you can't just like like steal them and in, unless you actually went to some like foreign head of state and you know wrote up a contract and sold them then it's kind of just no harm no foul that's obviously absurd that's not how it, not how any of this stuff works. Um, and as you say, these are ideologues. It, it's not going to, you know, it, it's not like if he hadn't gone on this trip, he's going to be like a big pro-choice dude or something like that. We all know that. Um, but that's not the standard. You, you just, you need to disclose this stuff. And and uh, just because that's what you need to do and, and um, is the law or is the ethics regulation, or if for some reason, by some technicality, it's not, it should be. But one of the, you know, tertiary reasons you have this is that if every other case, you're like, oh, I've got to recuse myself again, because I, I, I you know, that time I spent six months on, on Fred's yacht, um, you know, sailing around you know, the Cape of Good Hope, I guess that's, you know, I, I, if you're doing that constantly, people are going to say like, dude, you get a, like, how many, how much free stuff do you get? Like, what's, what's going on here? Um, and I think, you know, look, I, I think we know why they don't want to disclose this stuff because they feel like it's not anybody's business, you know? And, and I, I think most people, everybody wants like some privacy about what you do on your own private time and, and, so on and so forth, but obviously a little different here because again, you have the Leonard Leo Federalist Society um, billionaire sponsor family program, and they take you on these trips. And as we said, like like uh, Scalia did this nonstop, and Scalia seems to have done what you know many uh, kind of executive types, or maybe not executive types, in not cushy jobs, but jobs that allow for this. That you, um, you know, your job, uh, part of your job is you go to conferences sometimes, and um, you know you go to the conference and you schedule it with when some event is happening, and it's kind of a vacation on the, you know. On the on on someone else's dime, and uh, Scalia was clearly very good at this. You know, hey, we're gonna go on, uh, you know, go hunting for elk at your estate. Sure, I'm sure there's a. Is there any local college nearby where I can give a talk? And if you look at what Scalia said, I'm sorry. If you look at what Alito said, I'm not sure how he how he uh, his exact words, but he basically said something to the effect. This is the only time I, you know, got a freebie like this, not associated with a kind of a conference, which I think, you know, that's where it tells us that he's usually better at kind of like combining it with some with some speech or event. But this is out in the wilds of Alaska. And so he couldn't find one. And this is and this is this is probably why, uh, you know, why ProPublica zeroed in on this example, because it's just a little less it's it's less of a straight shot if 
you know, he said, hey, I, I was I was going to this conference at Harvard and now you're busting my chops because, you know, I, I stayed on Martha's Vineyard or something like that. Where else was I supposed to stay? So, you know, there you are. It's also the kind of thing that the Supreme Court justices are basically untouchable, you know, as we basically, as we saw most recently in the round of congressional Democrats getting mad about it and Durbin, you know, writing a letter saying we want Thomas or one of the other justices to come in and Robert saying no. Um, but it is kind of nice to at the very least see some of this embarrassing, dirty laundry put out in public where based on the peevishness of Alito's op-ed, he's like pretty pissed about it. So it's, you know, a small comfort that we can take. Yeah. Well, and if you remember that, that the sort of the the just the dynamite moment in this whole long saga is when um you know there were some democrats saying well look we should we should tighten up the ethics rules or we should at least um you know mandate that the supreme court comes up with some official ethics guidelines and uh roberts had that response of like well you know the court has never has never considered whether congress is allowed to do that because of separation of powers you're sort of like dude like you guys need to be like like reined in a bit because you really think you are beyond anything that's that's it's 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 pretty wild there's also a conflation that's been happening in nearly all all of the reporting about this that says that all of the justices signed off on the Roberts letter and that's not true all hmm. the justices signed off on the articulation of the ethics pledge that the justices are supposed to take they did not all sign off on his thing yeah his separation of powers threat his you know his thinly veiled you can't touch us thing right interesting interesting i didn't know that I didn't so know that. i mean small again the the power over the court seems quite small or you know differently articulated would require kind of unprecedented aggression that we know you know a split congress is not going to have and that honestly even the unified control democratic congress of last term didn't have um but you know anyway interesting uh, kind of dividing lines there so we're now going to talk about kind of the biggest specter that has been keeping Democrats up at night, which is this uh, no labels, third party candidate threat that's that's lurking in the background. And it's most often been tied to Joe Manchin um, in some part because he was on a call with them where he kind of ended the conference call and sounded very candidate in the call. And also because every time he's asked about this, he just says, you know, whatever I run for, I'm going to win. Also because he is up in 2024. He's running against Jim Justice, who's basically, you know, the best person to take him on, the quite popular former governor. Um, even though there have been some like interesting pieces there, including some other people who might run or who are running, who could kind of change the calculus of the race. But th this is the basic premise here is that right now, No Labels is kind of being like coy because they keep saying, you know, we, we're not here to be a spoiler. You know, we're only here to support a candidate that could actually win, which is obviously no candidate can actually win on a third party bid. Um, but so far, they're just in the kind of trying to secure ballot spots state, which they've already successfully done in Arizona, Colorado, Oregon, and Alaska. And then next on the list was Florida, North Carolina, and Nevada, um, e.g. swing states, nearly all that they're uh, they're aiming for. And then- well, And some more than others, like Arizona, Nevada, North Carolina, those are the biggies. Right. Those are the ones that, those matter. And so the big 
the democratic agita is coming from the place of, you know, it is I think widely believed that there are some people who push back on this, that 2016 went to Trump, at least in part because of the presence of third party candidates. Um, The thinking from the people in that camp is that Jill Stein kind of siphoned off votes from Hillary and that swung it to Trump. The people who say that that has been a bit overblown counter that Gary Johnson siphoned some votes from Trump. So it's not completely clear that the third party dynamic helped Trump. But either way, I think it's a bit more clear cut this time because right now the polling has been pretty consistent that people are not super psyched about another Biden Trump matchup. And that has been borne out. Um, you know, there's, there's all the people that, you know, it's boring. We've already seen it. They're both old, blah, blah, blah. But, but those polls also show nearly every time that those kind of like double haters, the people who don't like either are overwhelmingly say that they'll swing to Biden if that's the matchup, even if they're not excited, uh, you know, they don't like Trump enough that they would still unenthusiastically vote for Biden. And then the situation is if there was another person, maybe those double haters would go to that person instead, which would then hurt Biden a lot more than it would hurt Trump. And since Trump has never gotten to 47 percent in the vote, any additional factors that mean he doesn't have to surpass 50 to win, that helps him. So that's the situation we're we're looking at now. And I think the another thing that's making people alarmed about this is that No Labels is taking in a lot of money, you know, between like 70 and 100 million dollars based on varying reports. And that, you know, which with all of these factors combined, that they could be a threat and that they could swing, they could throw the election to Trump, which at this, you know, still early stage is looking pretty good for Biden, right? Because Biden has had I think has surprised a lot of people with his with the progressiveness of his governing in in his first term so far. This is Trump post loss, 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 indictment, 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 which as much as the right wing pretends, those things are not good for a candidacy. So it's like the most juiced Trump we've ever seen. And it'll be a Trump who's going to go through a bruising primary in one way or another, you know, uh, even if DeSantis's attacks are um not the most powerful up till this point. Now you've got Christie in there who like the whole point of this is to kind of vent his spleen on Trump. Um, So all of those factors kind of make this matchup seem pretty good for Biden, especially now that we have avoided debt ceiling catastrophe. So the economy seems like it'll be in a pretty good place. Um, And then the third labels threat is seen as the thing that could kind of disrupt that and potentially uh, give Trump an edge in an election where so far he seems pretty edgeless. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, I think what's important, I mean, first of all, I think the money is almost the whole thing. Because if these two randos, uh, you know, Mark Penn and and Nancy Jacobson, like, want to, like, run, okay, whatever, like, do, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of uh, sort of phantom parties that, that you know, are on the, on the ballot in a lot of places. But you put $100 million behind it, that matters. And, and what we have to remember here is, I mean, Obviously, everybody knows that this third party candidate isn't going to win. But what we're talking about here is remember, Wisconsin, Nevada, uh, less so less so Michigan, but Arizona, um, Georgia, you've got a lot of states where you're talking about really razor thin margins. So all you need all you need is for a third party candidate to come in and get like 1% of the vote. 
And that could easily move these states into into the other column. So it, it's um, w- when we're talking about, you know, our, our recent elections tend not to be that close in terms of the popular vote, as we know, um, although, you know, 47, 51 or 52, or that's still pretty close by historic, you know, historical margins. But they're often, as we know, very close in the Electoral College or not the Electoral College precisely, but very close in key states that make up the Electoral College, all of that kind of stuff. So even a even a flailing effort that just gets very marginal support, half a percent, could could easily turn the course of the election. And, and it's, it's, you know, and, and uh, I don't think the third labels thing will be the last of it. I, I, sus- I suspect that um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. will also uh, run in the general election. There's some, there's some issues you, you have, um, you know, some states have sore loser laws. You can't run in the primaries, then run in the general and all that kind of stuff. But again, not all states have that. And you only need to be operating in a few states. And if they don't use Robert Kennedy, they'll, they'll find someone else, another kind of like, uh, you know, a ban and puppet. So, and, and I think what's important here, it, it's not like, oh, you know, all hope is lost and everything. It's it's more that I think we're seeing the contours of what this election is going to be about, that a huge part of the outcome outcome is going to be determined in advance by whether you have um, well-funded or well-covered third-party, you know, stooge candidates. And it's possible you could have a non-stooge candidate who does the same thing. And I only distinguish between those two because, look, there are there are, uh, you know, people on the sort of, you know, the far left or the far right who they want to run themselves, you know, libertarian, green, whatever. Um, I think it is extremely unwise. And I don't personally, I don't see how anybody uh, anywhere on the left can understand that if the option is Trump. Um, But that is at least a little different from, uh, you know, Steve Bannon running a candidate in the Democratic primaries. Who who doesn't understand that? But you got like you got Cornell West, who, you know, and like I I I've uh when I was much younger, I met him a number of times. And he's a very interesting guy, but he has become a very destructive force in our politics. Very destructive. And um, you know, he's a really interesting smart guy and i i don't say this likely but he's someone who's really kind of fallen in love with the sound of his own voice there's 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 kind of no other way to put it so it's a, it's a, it's a it's a problem and interestingly um at least the democrats and the problem solvers caucus which we have made much fun of on this show but is kind of the legislative body that's that's explicitly aligned with no labels are you know, kind of coming out against this loudly. You know, um, one of them, Brad Schneider, who's a Democrat from Illinois, said, I can think of nothing worse than another Trump presidency and no better way of helping him than running a third party candidate. So the way I, I come at it is I think it's a, obviously something to be concerned about. And the more you get this stuff in the open and people are talking about it, the less effective it will be as kind of this like sneak attack meant to lure in low information voters. Um, there's, I also read kind of a compelling take um, from uh, an academic who, who kind of studies elections, who was writing about that third party candidates tend to do the best when 
the election is seen as a near certainty for one of the candidates yeah. and when a protest vote won't really matter or when the policy differences is not like a huge gulf between the two. And I think it's pretty safe to say that come 2024, if it is, as we expect, a Biden v. Trump matchup, neither of those lenses, I mean, fit on this situation. People at, by this point know who Trump is and how destructive and dangerous he is, which is why, which is reflected in the polling. I think that's why so many people who are unenthusiastic are saying like, you know, I'm not going to be stoked, but I will still vote for Biden ultimately. Yeah, no, I think that is, I mean, as you said at the end there, I think there's a, I think whoever that academic is, is, is basically right. Um, and the, but another way to put that is, you know, in 2016, people can say, well, you know, he's kind of bombastic, but we know Trump from that show and, and, you know, how bad can it be and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think the people who thought this, what I'm about to say are foolish, but many did kind of like, well, how big a difference would there be? Mm -hmm. Hillary and, 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 and Trump. And as you say, at this point, I don't think anybody is thinking like, oh, Trump, how bad can it be? Like, right. dude, it can be really fucking bad. And I think we all understand that. Like either you are for Trump or you are scared shitless about Trump. There's like no, there's kind of no middle ground. So I do think that, you know, there's a reason there was not a significant third party vote in 2020. Exactly. Because everybody got that every everything was on the line. So I think on the, you know, there is that positive side. So, so as, as you say, it's not like all hope is lost. It's just, it's just a matter of seeing clearly that that is one of the fundamental dynamics of the outcome in 2024. Mm -hmm. And plus 2016, I mean, basically everyone thought Hillary was going to win until the election. So, you know, again, I think... Unrealistically in some ways. Totally. By, by, but, by for a lot of reasons. But yes, absolutely. No one thought Trump could... Right. So, I mean, win. if you're going to cast your protest vote, right, like, I mean, it seems lower stakes when everyone thought that, that she was going to win. And I think, again, a contributor to why 2020 did not have that because... Everyone was uh, disproved of that notion pretty, pretty aggressively. Um, and I also think, I don't know, Manchin's role here is is interesting, right? Because I think part of the reason why it keeps like lurking as, as a concern, I think you're totally right. It's mostly the money. But also, you know, Manchin put out some or when he was asked about this, like he's been asked about it a lot by this point. But he said something like, you know, I, I have no interest in being a spoiler or something, which had we not lived through the last three years with him, I honestly think people would take as a comfort, you know, if we remember at the beginning of this, of the last congressional term, people kept asking him about, you know, what about this part of the Biden agenda and this part? And he said, I am not going to make Joe Biden an unsuccessful president. And I remember that so clearly because when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. So it's in the back. It's he's good. not going to be a huge yeah. issue, right? He's going to, you know, kind of make a stand on the on the few things he, he has to make a stand on. But if he wants Biden to be a successful president, then he's going to go along with the agenda. And then look what those two years were, a, a constant battle. And I think, I think correctly- Although in, although in fairness- at the end of the day, That's it, what wasn't, it wasn't it wasn't the whole thing, but he but he did make possible what we now see as the centerpiece of Biden's agenda. The he Inflation came through Act. In, in nearly every way, as agonizing as it was. But I think back then and when he said that, 
people were having illusions of an even grander agenda that maybe an even more progressive slate would be possible. So now when he says he doesn't want to be a spoiler, you're kind of like, well, okay, you know, man who cried wolf, like it's kind of hard to take you at your word at this point, because clearly what you saw as not being a thorn in the side of successful President Joe Biden did not match what everybody else sees as that. So who knows what your definition of not a spoiler is, right? Well, especially because I mean, look, there is no scenario in this universe in which that candidate is not a spoiler. Now, they may not they may not throw the election in a way that that you care about if you're a Biden supporter, but there is no way in this universe that person not only win not only any way they win the election, there's no way they win any state. Right? I mean, so from the from the beginning it is he's he's not leveling with anybody since clearly the only possible scenario is that person is a spoiler. And in the nature of things, just with the way third party dynamics work and all that kind of stuff, um, you don't know what the outcome of your spoiling is. Maybe everything turns out okay. Maybe you throw it one way, maybe you throw it the other way. I mean, I think it is it is much more likely it hurts Biden, but it's not impossible that that you know, they kind it it plays out in a couple states in a way that that somehow knocks a you know knocks a sure thing state out for Trump. So you don't really know, but the the whole thing is ridiculous. And I think, look, it, it's not that to me. What what makes me relatively confident, or I'm not even sure I would say confident, makes me think that he will not be part of this, is that I don't think he wants to end his career not only losing by such an immense margin. But becoming just like a a sort of object of contempt and ridicule because he's a player, right? He is someone who everybody in Washington had to watch his every statement. He's the person who said, okay, now the Inflation Reduction Act, what we now call the Inflation Reduction Act, can pass. Now, when I say, you know, kind of like being the big dude, like people saying, is he more powerful than Biden? Someone like that doesn't want to end their career saying like, oh, I might I might break 1% in Alaska. It, it's like Connor Roy, right? For people who, who watch Succession, or frankly, who, the Connor Roy here is Robert Kennedy Jr., Right. I mean, he is the Connor Roy, Connor Kennedy. I mean, but again, I don't think Joe Manchin wants to um, wants to finish up that way. I suspect he runs for Senate and I don't rule out that he can win. He's he's you know, yes, the polls look pretty bad for him. But um, now you said before about how they're um, how, uh, you know, some other people might run in the primary, I guess the Republican primary in mm-hmm. West Virginia. I assume what the issue is there is that, and for, for those of you who don't kind of, um, you know, ha- have a sense of uh, West Virginia politics, and I don't have a lot of sense of West Virginia politics, but when he first ran for governor, Jim Justice was Democrat. Mm-hmm. So he's not a hardcore conservative. Obviously, when you switch parties, you kind of like suddenly you're like, you know, Joe QAnon and stuff. So he's pretty conservative, but I'm sure there are a lot of Republicans in the state and a lot of hardcore conservatives like, dude, I've been waiting. Like, I'm not going to we're not going to, you know, give this to you. Uh, you know, kind of anybody can beat Joe Manchin, or at least they think that. So who knows? He could, he could win there. I just don't think he wants to. 
I don't think he wants to end his career that way. And I take some some confidence from that. So the factors I was talking about in West Virginia are you've got Alex Mooney, who is in the House of Representatives, and he's like one of the Trumpiest congressmen there is. Uh, he is looking to run and he is so far backed by the Club for Growth, which is like has a lot of resources at its disposal. So I, you know, if, if he could somehow win the nomination or really beat up Jim Justice by reminding everyone that he was a Democrat and, and kind of using that as a cudgel, um, I think that's kind of an X factor in, in the situation. And then also you have uh, Don Blankenship, who just took out some ad buys on the various networks. Um you know, so the thinking there is like if he ran as an independent, he would probably leech off some Republican votes. And if you could split that, you know, I mean, is, isn't isn't he the mine owner who's been like indicted and and, and like said McConnell's like cocaine Mitch or am I yeah, thinking of the wrong guy? Right. OK, that, that's OK, right, 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 right. right. Um, yeah. So. So it's a pretty feral place. Right. And I think all of those factors, whether or not they would ultimately be enough for Manchin to win what is like undoubtedly a huge uphill climb. You know, if, if there was enough hope that he could win, I think that he would stay in the race because there really isn't any other like natural offshoot for him right now. And in terms of, of doing the no labels thing, it's like, I, I get it. You know, you don't want to put anything past him at this point. But People who kind of run in these, I know I'm not going to win, but I want to be in the race roles, like often do it because they want their issues to get talked about, right? Or they want, uh, you know, or think of kind of like Bernie running in the primaries. That, and that's one that had a really tangible effect, right? Like his and Warren's stuff forced the more, you know, Biden, the more centristy people to like talk about universal health care and really did like kind of change the democratic agenda. And I'm not saying everyone who runs is that serious or that like ideological, but Manchin is a ideological. Like he has no policy convictions whatsoever. So it's like, you know, when you ask like, why, why are you getting into this race? I mean, he's going to say some bullshit about like, well, I want to bring like civility back to Washington, which is like terrific, you know? Well, his, his big thing is like his ideology is going on the Sunday shows, basically. That is yeah, his exactly. ideology and like whining and, and like, like, great. I don't want to say anything mean about Manchin because we don't want you to do anything bad. <laughs> so we're not criticizing Joe Manchin and the, and, and the people who I know who are friends of Joe Manchin. I'm not criticizing. I'm, it's all good. We love Joe Manchin, but I'll, I will. I will. I will say this: that the thing to keep in mind is is that if he has any hope of winning a Senate reelection in West Virginia, he has to spend the next eighteen months crapping on Democrats at every opportunity. He has to be saying how Joe Biden sucks. You know, Joe Biden turned out to be a total AOC, liberal Marxist, crazy person. Joe Biden blows and all this kind of stuff because he needs to he needs to posit, you know, get in that get in that posture in 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 West Virginia. So, I mean, again, if you're everything that pisses you off is probably not you, Kate, but, you know, you Um is exactly what he needs to do if he's going to have any shot of getting reelected. And, uh, you know, you got to hope he gets reelected because because it is it is virtually it is very hard to see how um, possible, but it's pretty hard to see how Democrats hold on to the Senate if they don't hold on to that yeah. seat. Okay, so now uh, let's transition to our last topic of the day, which is kind of what exactly is going on in Congress post the debt ceiling bill? Because 
uh, now law, because I'm sure, as many of our listeners, I'm sure, noticed the kind of celebrating that we averted the debt ceiling time was extremely short before we got into the, and now we're facing a government shutdown kind of alarm pieces coming from all corners. Um, And it was funny because reporting this one was like, it's really complicated. And in a lot of pieces I read, people just kind of like wrote around the complicated parts, which I understand because it was honestly kind of a heavy lift. But the situation we're basically facing is this, which is the the debt ceiling law passes, the one that was brokered by Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. And within that bill were parameters on the spending for the appropriations process, which are normally two totally separate things. We have to raise or suspend the debt ceiling sometimes so the U.S. can pay back its debts. And every year, Congress has to pass budgets to keep the federal government operating. Those are different. And if we hadn't done the debt default or the debt ceiling, we would have defaulted, which would have been historic, calamitous, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't fund the government in time, we have government shutdowns, which all of us have lived through before. They tend to be like a few days to a week long Um way less damaging. I mean, embarrassing. And some federal workers like don't know if they have work for for a time and national parks close and, and no one's saying it's great, but it does not compare to default. And the reason the two things are linked, because in that debt ceiling law, McCarthy and Biden agreed to spending levels for the appropriations process, which everyone thought was going to make the appropriations process like 800 times smoother than usual, because we'd already agreed what we were going to spend, which is one of the biggest points of contention between Republicans and Democrats. However, After the debt ceiling law passed, the far right flank of the House caucus went into open revolt and they started shutting down the floor, blocking down, blocking their own bills, all because they were pissed at McCarthy for striking this deal with Biden. So McCarthy said in response, "Okay, fine, we can write our spending bills way below the levels that I agreed to with Biden. Essentially, we can renege on the deal that we just made days ago um, and write down to like fiscal year 2022 levels, which is way below what they agreed to. Uh, Democrats get really pissed, right? Because they're like, we just made this deal and you're walking away from it. And now we're in a situation where So far, the Senate appropriators, the leads who are Patty Murray and Susan Collins, are just kind of ignoring that revolt and writing to the details in the debt ceiling law, which is kind of leaving the House Republicans on an island right now. Because a lot of Senate Republicans, too, are not jazzed about the revolt, partially because there is a punishment written into the debt ceiling law, which technically it starts with a January 1st deadline. If they don't uh, pass the appropriations package or a continuing resolution, which is a spending bill that just keeps the spending levels like flat while they keep haggling the details. If they don't do it by January 1st, asterisk, this is only enforced on April 30th. So it doesn't really kick in till then. But the punishment is that everything reverts back to 2023 levels with a 1% cut, which would be, as we talked about last week, a big cut for defense spending. And that's supposed to be the stick that keeps Republicans at the table. And Senate Republicans are like, uh, yeah, we don't want to do that. Like, that doesn't sound good. So it's a, you know, a pressure to kind of keep everyone working within the parameters of the deal, because if everything falls apart, that's the punishment that's built in. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now, and which is why the shutdown risk is heightened, because even if House Republicans are out there by themselves, if all House Republicans kind of band together and refuse to pass 
the spending bills that are written at the levels outlined in the deal, that will shut down the government. And the two the two kind of pressure points where the shutdown happens is October 1st, which is the new fiscal year when they have to pass this stuff by. But they can just pass a continuing resolution there to kind of avert that deadline without any punishment. So that's probably what they'll do. And then January 1st is the next time that this that a shutdown could happen. Okay, so I guess the key point is that that 3% defense cut in defense spending cudgel mm-hmm. remains in effect kind of regardless of what of what House Republicans do, right? So that cudgel is still there, right? They mm-hmm. can't really and I guess they would say, well, we're not going outside of the agreement. The agreement, you know, the agreement didn't say we have to spend at X levels. It just said there's this punishment if we don't spend at X levels. And I, I guess my um, my confidence here is that there are lots of Senate Republicans who see an you know a a non-real dollars cut, you know, a kind of a top line um, nominal cut of three percent to defense as absolutely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Like they they see the current the, the current deal basically puts into effect Biden's increase. You know, by what Biden proposed, which is I guess like a 1% increase which in is it 1% in a, in a in an inflationary period is in effect a cut in real dollars they would argue uh, or not argue. I mean, it is. Uh, although Inflation works a little differently, and in, in you know, the defense spending is not really quite the real economy. In any case, I don't think they will. There's just no way Senate Republicans are going to go along with like, oh, I guess we have to have a three percent cut in in defense spending. So I I think that um, and and as you say, I mean, I guess you know you can have a shutdown if they then maybe there's going to be a shutdown. Well, everybody's kind of figuring out what to do. But I, I just don't think they can. There's just no way they can they can make their um, their their wish list cuts work. It's just I mean, that's why it was a good deal. Right. You know, they seem to have missed that there could also be a shutdown, but they 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 put teeth in this in in a way that these guys can't get around. And, and I assume what McCarthy's thinking is, is that. A, I need to kind of stabilize the uh, situation in my caucus, but like, okay, you can do a kind of a LARPing, like, appro- you know, appropriations bills and and you'll just, we'll, we'll hit the buzzsaw at the end of the year and kind of whatever. It's no no skin off his back um, to allow them to do that. And, and in a sense, it kind of is no skin off his back. Um, they can go through the motions. So, but yeah, I guess you could have like a couple shutdowns, but like whatever. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure. Um, you know, we're, we're past the point of what is good government and what is ideal. We're, we're, we're trying to get, make it through to 2024 and make sure uh, Donald Trump doesn't become president again. That's the big deal. Yeah. And I think partially it's like there are so many months before we kind of hit the serious sequestration punishment written in that debt ceiling law you know that doesn't kick in until april 30th that to some degree it might be a matter of like let them get this their you know get the steam out now like right budgets that give five dollars to the education department like sure you know kind of 
do that. As you say, a shutdown, especially compared to the debt ceiling, which an awful lot of Republicans were kind of at least happy to do that too. On their yeah. face, happy to do that. This is like, you know, one person described it to me as like, if they were willing to shoot themselves in the head, why wouldn't they shoot themselves in the foot? Right. It's just kind of like the shutdown seems like very possible and also just relatively fine. I mean, it's going to be on House Republicans then to sell the argument. We had to shut down the government because it was so important to us to renege from the deal, the deal we just made four months ago and that McCarthy was all over the place like bragging about what a great deal it was. So yeah, that's kind of the situation. And I think the ultimate or the biggest point here is like having House Republicans be siloed off already at this early date, having Senate Republicans not even being willing to be like, well, let's wait and see what they produce, but kind of already being like, like, no, we don't want to endanger defense spending like that, I think just furthers the narrative that House Republicans are kind of unserious and just auditioning for Fox News at all times. And then, you know, on a parallel track, we have now Lauren Boebert is going to force the House to vote on impeaching Biden, which McCarthy is like really mad about. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who like backs the effort, is also saying that accusing Boebert of being a quote, copycat because she filed impeachment articles first. So it all contributes to this thing of like House Republicans are fundamentally unserious, like not negotiation partners, not someone you have to take particularly seriously. And if they kind of keep to this tack with the appropriations process, they're just going to be written out, right? They're just not going to be part of it. You're going to let the the big kids figure out the spending levels. And then it'll be up to McCarthy to get as many kind of normal Republicans on board as possible. And then just let, you know, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert kind of hold a press conference in the parking lot or whatever. Now, do, do you have a sense of either from just being up there in the Hill or in other reports, what does, you know, what does the sort of the 150 non-Freedom Caucus Republicans, how are they feeling about this? Because I, I, I think one of our takeaways from the deal that was, you know, the, the Biden-McCarthy deal, which you know, broadly those 150 or so voted for was they were thinking like, yeah, we don't want to live. We don't want to be ruled by these idiots. Um, And with, you know, uh, there's a lot of people, uh, there are a a pretty substantial number of uh, House Republicans that are in, you know, maybe not districts they're going to lose, but that they can't, you know, that it's not a sure thing. Um, They don't want to make their reelection harder. They they don't want to go through all this. And and I'm thinking now about this Boebert impeachment thing. It the, the reason I mean, the reason they're so pissed is obvious. That is, if you're a Republican and you get a chance to vote on impeaching Joe Biden and you say, no, I don't want to impeach Joe Biden. That becomes like your full rhino, right? And but on the other hand, that's not part of Kevin McCarthy's plan right now to have a summer impeachment trial because you know uh, Lauren Boebert sort of forced this chain of events that maybe they can't get out of you know get out of under. So I, I'm I'm very curious um, where that group is going to figure in as this stuff unfolds. I mean, as of now, they're going to be taking their cues from leadership, right? And right now, McCarthy is saying those spending levels that we that we agreed to are a ceiling, not a floor. We can go under them. Um, the head House appropriator for the Republicans, Kay Granger, is you know kind of saying the same thing. Um, 
But again, it's just, it's so low stakes right now. I mean, in congressional time, we're like a century out from when this stuff matters that I just think broadly, there's not a lot to lose from people just kind of like letting it happen for now. Um, You know, it lets the House Freedom people like crow around about how like they've gotten a win for once, you know. Um, And it even lets the more kind of run of the mill Republicans be like, well, we're serious about rating and spending, blah, 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 like austerity, whatever. And then it's just like, okay, fine. Um, You know, as one person said to me, sometimes in a new Congress, people feel like they have to have the fight and lose it. And then they kind of go back to normal governing. And I think that's the that's the the period we're in right now. Yeah, I mean, I and, and that makes, you know, that makes sense for all the reasons um, that we described that, you know, you 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 kind of do your LARPing budget now. And you get it out of your system. And then, you, you know, maybe you have a shutdown to kind of show you're not like a rhino. And then everything kind of ends up like we thought. By the, right. with the deal. And again, I think the key point for listeners is that they negotiated a deal that has serious teeth in it. And things that that Republican, at least at least Senate Republicans, frankly, a lot of House Republicans, um, kind of all but some of the really out there ones, um, that's what they care about. They don't want, uh, you know, uh, big defense cuts. Um, and so it has teeth. And I don't think any of this stuff's going to happen. It might be a little bumpy, but I think the deal was a good deal because it had it had strong enforcement mechanisms. Agree. Okay, so I guess that is uh, I guess that's it for uh, today's episode. I want to remind you the sponsor of this episode is our drive for the TPM Journalism Fund. So if you haven't contributed yet, please give it uh, give it a thought to uh, make today the day or whatever day you are listening to this podcast if you're only a podcast listener and don't uh don't come to the site often uh still a good reason to uh contribute because tpm is what makes this podcast possible so go to the site talkingpointsmemo.com and if you do you'll see all sorts of promos and everything it'll be really clear where to do it um and i guess that is it for today's episode all right see you next week later The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader